When I was in the fifth grade, we had two classroom characters. There was Chuck, the class clown, and there was Jason, the class rule keeper. Now, we vastly preferred Chuck because he kept us all laughing. Jason kept getting us all in trouble. You see, Jason was obsessed with following the rules, and he believed it was his job to make sure everyone else followed the rules as well. So he would monitor and report on any and every infraction. Teacher, Bruce is talking during the test. Oh, I just saw that Jerry didn't line up properly after recess. Susie just copied off Annie's paper. Jason's entire focus was the outward behavior of other people because that's what rule keepers do. That's where their focus is. Unfortunately, people like that often wind up caring more about the rules than about relationships. They get their priorities wrong. And Jason, because of his obsession with the rules, alienated people, and he became a burden to everyone. Now, people like Jason have been around forever. Back in Israel in the first century, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were the rule keepers of that day. And they took the law of God revealed in the Jewish Bible, what we call the Old Testament, they took that law of God and and they treated it like a set of religious rules to follow. And they not only made it their job to follow the rules, they made it their job to monitor and report on how well everybody else was doing it following the rules. But they misunderstood God's purpose. They had their priorities wrong. Rules became more important to them than relationships. And they took God's incredible law and they turned it into a burden. And now Jesus has arrived and it's time for him to set things straight. It's time for Jesus to explain that the law of God is not intended to be a burden but a blessing. It's time for Jesus to reorient the people so they properly understand and live out the law of God. And ultimately, it's about relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. In the passage that we will explore this morning, Jesus is going to talk about the vital importance of healthy human relationships. And the fact is, relationships are messy. They're just messy. And that means they're almost impossible to handle through rules. In reality, relationships ultimately are matters of the heart. And so when it comes to other people, what we really need to ask is, what's in my heart? What's in your heart? That's what Jesus wants us to consider this morning. And he's going to tackle this issue in a very interesting way because he's going to address the issue of healthy relationships by talking about murder. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. 
Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, Jesus has just done something very profound. He has redefined a portion of God's law. And he's going to do this again several times in his sermon, and each time he's going to use the same approach. He'll begin by saying, you have heard it said, and then he will state a well-known commandment or instruction. And after that, he will say, but I tell you, and he will offer a new insight into God's truth. And he begins here by reciting one of the Ten Commandments, which are recorded for us in the book of Exodus chapter 20. Commandment number six is do not murder. Now, a brief side note. Some Bible translations say do not kill instead of do not murder. But murder is the appropriate way to translate that because God's original law in the Old Testament did allow for certain lawful kinds of killing, such as capital punishment, and specific military battles authorized by God. Murder is different than killing because murder, in its purest form, is the intentional and unlawful taking of another human life. And God says this always is wrong. It was wrong under the old covenant, it's wrong under the new covenant. However, when it comes to lawful killing, such as war, sanctioned by the state, or the death penalty, Christians often disagree about whether or not this is valid under the new covenant. Now, that's a discussion for another day, because that's not the point that Jesus wants to make. But we need to understand the difference. Jesus wants to make a point about God's law and relationships, and he chooses to address this topic by speaking about murder. And at first, that may seem odd to us, but I believe he picks this topic because it allows him to show exactly how the teachers of the law misunderstood and misapplied God's law. First, the teachers define murder and its impact and its consequences narrowly. They saw it purely as an outward human action, not as a matter of the heart. And yet, if you murder someone, it seems to beg the question, what's in your heart? What would drive you to commit such a horrific act? Teachers in Israel weren't much interested in that question. And furthermore, if you did commit murder, the teachers viewed the consequence in human terms. They saw it as, oh, you will be judged legally by human courts. They didn't talk much about the judgment of God. And the bottom line is that they treated this command like a human rule that just happened to be given by God rather than a spiritual principle designed by God. A spiritual principle designed to reveal the condition of the human heart. A spiritual principle designed to remind us that earthly actions can have significant eternal consequences. The teachers of the law failed to grasp the heart of this commandment. 
The other problem with being a rule keeper is you tend to look at each of these rules individually. You don't get the big picture. And this prohibition against murder must be evaluated in light of all of the other teaching and the larger context about our treatment of other people. And in the Bible, God gives us great wisdom to guide our relationships with each other, such as don't lust after the wife of another man. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't gossip or engage in slander. And how about this one? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. How do you do that exactly? How do you love your neighbor as you love yourself? It seems to me there's an almost, almost limitless number of ways we could put that principle into practice. You see, it's not a rule, it's a principle. It's a principle that I only can implement in my relationships with the wisdom of God as I ask Him to give me discernment in a whole variety of relational situations. The more that we look at what the Bible has to say in the advice that we're given about relationships, it becomes increasingly clear that we cannot do relationships through rules. I think about a friend of mine <clears throat> named Tim who really struggled in his marriage. And every time he was having a conflict with his wife, he would say to me, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. He wanted a rule. And I said, Tim... I can't give you a set of rules to govern married life. God gives us in the Bible wonderful principles and it's up to you and your wife to prayerfully discuss those and figure out how to apply God's principles to the thousands of decisions and interactions that you have in your relationship. And that's true in all of our relationships. And what Tim failed to understand and what the teachers of Israel failed to understand is that relationships cannot be defined or managed by black and white rules. They're a matter of the heart. I believe that's the point that Jesus is making. And, <clears throat> and he makes it abundantly clear by his approach here. He takes some of these other teachings about human relationships teachings about anger and hatred and slander, and he holds them up against this teaching, don't murder. And as a, as a way to try and understand the impact of what Jesus is saying, I try to picture the scene. Jesus is preaching on that mountainside. There's a huge crowd of ordinary people who followed him up the side of that mountain to listen to him speak. And they hear him say, don't murder. Now, based on the way they've been taught, they could easily think in that moment, look how righteous I am. I haven't murdered anybody. I'm great. And then Jesus nails them with his next comment. Because he essentially says, you know that murder is wrong. Why then do you use your anger to destroy other people? Why do you engage in verbal assassination? Why do you engage in behavior that murders your relationships? Ouch. 
You see, I think everyone listening to Jesus would be cut to the heart. These comments cut me to the heart. After all, if I am not allowed to take away your life, why should I be allowed to take away your reputation? Why should I have the right to ruin our relationship through anger or name-calling or slander? Jesus is saying that this part of God's law is about far more than just a physical act of murder. To correctly understand it, we need to realize that that it encompasses our thoughts and our words and our emotions. It's a matter of the heart because it forces us to confront our true feelings about other people. And God deeply values all human life because every human being is made in His image. And we have to ask, do we value people the way God does? Or do we at times engage in relational murder? Jesus' point becomes even more clear when we, <coughs> excuse me, when we look at these very common Jewish insults that he mentions here in this passage. Excuse me. The Aramaic word raka listed here in verse 22 is very similar to the way we would insult someone by saying, You're an idiot. That's the force of that insult. But, But think about this when we claim that other people are stupid simply because they do not see things the same way that we do, we are placing ourselves in the role of judge and jury, and we have no right to do that. And the second insult Jesus mentions is calling someone a fool, and that word has much more negative connotations to the Jews than it would to us. It means that we are claiming that someone is such a moral and spiritual scoundrel that they are in danger of hell. Jesus says the opposite is true. He says if we take it upon ourselves to pronounce moral judgment on another person, then we're the ones in danger of hell because once again we've set ourselves up as judge and jury. Now, we're certainly entitled to tell someone else, I think you're wrong. I disagree with you. Let's talk about that. But only God can pass ultimate judgment on human behavior. Now, as Jesus makes these points, we need to be very clear who he's talking about. He uses the term here, brother and sister. He's using family terms, but in many cases when Jesus uses those family terms, he's not talking literally about siblings within a, a genetic family. I believe here he's talking about God's family. He's talking about the community of faith. And I think he's telling us that healthy relationships begin here among fellow citizens of the kingdom of God, people who are supposed to share God's values. And if we can't learn here among us how to have healthy civil relationships, where will we learn to do them? And if we can't have healthy civil relationships within the church of Jesus Christ, then our relationships outside the community of faith probably are not going to be much better. It starts here with us. 
So Jesus has taken the act of physical murder. He's taken anger and insults and he's placed them alongside each other. And we understand that they're not the same. Yet I think he's telling us that in the sight of God, anger and insults are symptomatic of a murderous intent because they reveal a desire to run roughshod over another person. And while we might never actually think about taking someone's life, sometimes our attitudes and sometimes our behavior clearly indicate that we really wish that other person were dead or at least out of our way. And if we look in the mirror, we have to admit that at times we Christians can be really good at the anger and insult game. And that's not something to be proud of. We use our anger and our insults to pass judgment on people who do not agree with our theology. We use anger and insults to pass judgment on people whose behavior we believe doesn't measure up to our view of righteousness. We pass judgment on people whose politics differs from ours. And Jesus says those kinds of judgmental attitudes are dangerous. They're dangerous to to those who are the focus of our venom because our behavior can be so hurtful to them. But judgmental behavior also is dangerous to us because it reveals the unhealthy condition of our hearts. And Jesus wants us to know that if we engage in relational murder, we expose ourselves to judgment. Not the judgment of human courts, but the judgment of God. This is hard stuff. Not easy to hear. Not easy to understand and embrace and assess if we're honest about who we are. But fortunately, now that Jesus has described the severity of the problem, he's going to explain how to fix things. He's going to give us a solution. And what he does is this. He urges us to pursue reconciliation, and the key is to pursue it with a sense of urgency. Let's look at verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Jesus says, whenever you have a broken relationship, be willing to take the initiative to fix it. Don't ignore the problem, and don't wait for the other person to act. We need to be willing to interrupt our own schedules and set aside our own priorities in order to pursue reconciliation. And Jesus drives that point home by the very interesting and unusual way that he sets up this hypothetical situation. He doesn't say, if you have a problem with your brother or sister, go to them. He says, if you remember that they have something against you, you go to them. That's a completely different thing. And I think the impact of the way Jesus describes this becomes more clear when we consider the scenario that he's setting up. He's describing a situation where a faithful Jewish man or woman has come to the temple 
to offer their gift. They're at the altar, and that gift is the sacrificial animal. They're bringing the lamb to sacrifice for their sins. And if someone is coming to the sacrifice, it's logical to assume that they have at least done some reflecting on their behavior. The fact that their behavior has fallen short of God's expectations. And now they've come to the temple to say, God, I need you to forgive me. What this means, as the Jewish believer is approaching that moment of sacrifice, their focus is on themselves. Their focus is on their own personal righteousness. They want to be in a right place with God, and that's wonderful. And yet, righteousness in the Bible is never just about individuals and their relationship with God. Righteousness also is about relationships between people. Righteousness is not just about me or just about you. It's about us. And Jesus is reminding his listeners that righteousness has a social dimension. So to make this more real, I try and put myself into this scenario. Okay, I'm I'm a faithful Jew back in that day. I've gone through the process of arranging to get a lamb, and I've made the journey to the temple, and I'm getting ready to sacrifice. And based on what Jesus says, I need to be thinking about more than myself. Because I need to think about how my behavior impacts the people around me. So I need to be thinking about my spouse and my family and my business partner and my neighbors. Now I know that I'm I'm a sinner. But I also may think, well, in my relationships recently, I haven't done anything wrong. I don't have anything to apologize for or need forgiveness for. But perhaps there's someone in my life who has something against me. And if I take Jesus seriously, he says, if I'm aware of that, I'm not entitled to ignore it. If I recognize that there's even a potential problem, I need to be willing to interrupt my plans there in the temple. I need to be willing to say to the priest, here, hold my lamb, I'll be back. And then I need to go hunt up that other person. I need to clear the air right away, and then I return and offer my sacrifice. According to Jesus, reconciliation is that vital, it's that important, it's that urgent. Now, obviously, back in that day, they didn't have digital communications like we do today. But I believe even today, Just as back then, face-to-face is the best way to try and resolve a conflict. Texting and email and social media are no way to try to resolve a conflict. And in fact, in many cases, they just exacerbate it. But when we are in a conflict with someone and we do meet face-to-face and talk it through, it's surprising how often misunderstandings can be laid to rest. But here's what's so interesting about this scenario. Because Jesus says it's not about me and my issue with another person, it's about the other person and their potential issue with me, and that becomes so much easier to ignore and brush off. And just two weeks ago, I saw that exact situation play out. I was talking with a brother in the faith, And he happened to mention, oh, so-and-so texted me wanting to set up an appointment for us to meet face-to-face because he says there's an issue and he wants us to be reconciled. I don't know what his problem is. I'm fine. 
I got no issue with him. So I see no need to meet. I'm just ignoring his text. You see, sadly, my brother has missed the heart and the point of what Jesus is saying here. So I said, you need to meet. (laughs) You may be okay, but obviously he's not. And we don't know if what he's not okay with is legitimate or not until you meet and try and clear the air. Get together, resolve whatever issue is there. Jesus is making it abundantly clear that he wants us to urgently pursue reconciliation with brothers and sisters in the faith. And he says it's important enough that I want you to be willing to be inconvenienced and interrupted in order to make that a priority. Now that's hard to do. Not easy to pursue reconciliation. And he's talking here about other members of God's family where it ought to be at least somewhat easy because we're supposed to share the same kingdom values. And yet Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't say merely, I want you to urgently pursue reconciliation with your friends in the family of God. He's going to go on and say, I want you to urgently pursue reconciliation even with an adversary. Look at what he says next in verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you still are together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. At first glance, it may seem that Jesus is generally talking about any kind of a lawsuit or legal conflict, but when he gets to verse 26 and he says, well, if you're thrown in jail, you won't get out until you paid the last penny, it becomes clear that he's talking about a lawsuit over an unpaid debt. It's a case where we owe someone some money, and Jesus says, fix it. Fix it quickly. If we owe a debt, that's not the time to drag matters out or play games. We need to get it resolved. And Jesus says, even in the very act of going to court, it's not too late. You can resolve it and settle it on the way there. The goal is to mend the broken relationship. So Jesus has established a principle here about broken relationships and reconciliation. And he's offered us two distinct examples Two very different examples, a person at worship and a person being sued because he wants us to understand reconciliation from these two different perspectives. Now, in the first case, I believe I'm innocent. I've done nothing wrong. And in the second case, I know I'm wrong. But in both cases, Jesus says, my part is to take the initiative and not wait for the other person to act. I am asked by God to urgently initiate reconciliation, and I don't believe we will easily do that if we're just following the rules. You see, a rule follower who thinks they're innocent, why bother? It's your problem, not mine. And a rule follower who knows they're guilty may just say, ah, 
let the legal process run its course because relationships are not the priority. All of that changes, though, when I approach relationships as a matter of the heart. When my relationships become a matter of the heart, then I'm going to be inclined toward restoration and reconciliation. That will be my priority because clearly that is the priority of Jesus. And there are not always clear rules to follow about how to be reconciled. But we take the initiative, we go to the other person, and we prayerfully ask God to be at work and trust that matters can be resolved. Now having said that, there is a huge part of reconciliation which Jesus doesn't even address here. And before we wrap up, we need to address it. What happens if the other person refuses to be reconciled? That's, that's a big part of this puzzle. <clears throat> and I believe that Jesus doesn't address it here because his purpose in this short teaching is not to provide us with all of the ins and outs about how to be reconciled. His purpose is to speak to people who have been trained to be rule followers and say, I need you to make relationships a priority, and that means reconciliation is urgent. That's his goal. And yet, we need to know, we need to know what to do if we faithfully follow Jesus' advice, we take the initiative, we go to another person, and they refuse because they have a hard heart. And it is a tragic fact that some people are content to live with broken relationships. Some people are unwilling to do what's necessary to restore relationships. And thankfully, Thankfully, the Apostle Paul gives us a principle to guide our actions. It's recorded for us in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 18, where he says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. What a profound, helpful principle. Paul is saying it takes both parties to fix a broken relationship. Both people have to be willing to acknowledge that there's a problem and sincerely work on restoring things. And it means it's not all up to us. We only can do our part. And Jesus says our responsibility is to take the initiative, to make the effort to live in peace. And if the other person refuses to help restore the relationship, it's not on us. Their lack of response is not our fault nor our responsibility. And I believe in those situations all we can do is pray and ask God to help us let the matter go. To pray and say, God, I don't want to be revengeful. I don't want to continue <clears throat> to hold anger in my heart. I just want to move on. And we continue to pray for that other person in the hopes that things will change but we don't let their hardness of heart ensnare us and drag us down. And for me, this, this isn't just theory. It's very real. Because there are three men in my life where this exact situation is taking place. They have something against me. 
And I've tried on numerous occasions to invite them into a conversation where we can clear the air and I can find out exactly what it is that they're upset about, see if we can bring some resolution. And all of them have either overtly refused my invitation or ignored it. I can't force them to meet with me. I can't force them to change. So I've prayed for them. And I continue to pray for them. But I've moved on. That's all I can do. When I see these men in public, which I do from time to time, I'm polite. I'm civil. But we don't have a relationship. We can't have a relationship. Because they have anger and bitterness toward me, which they want to hold on to. And it's tragic. It's really more tragic for them than it is for me. But it's tragic for both of us because a relationship has been destroyed. And I believe it breaks the heart of our God. But there's nothing else I can do until they decide to act because the invitation is there. And so I take this advice from Jesus and this guidance from the Apostle Paul and I say, yes, Lord, as far as it's up to me, I want to live in peace with all people, but it's not just up to me, it's up to them. And I will always be open and I'm always ready to take initiative, but they've got to be willing to act. And what becomes clear in all of this is that relationships are not easy. Fixing broken relationships is not easy. Reconciliation is hard. And the fact is, the life of a disciple is hard. And the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to be more than a believer. It is an invitation to be a disciple, to be a person who continuously learns, to be a person who falls more and more in love with Jesus, a person who is willing to continually be changed. And what becomes clear in this text is that disciples don't try to manage life or relationships by following the rules. We understand that relationships are a matter of the heart. And so when we think about the people around us, the people within our sphere of influence, the people that we interact with, we need to ask, what's in my heart? Am I driven by anger? hatred or slander or am I motivated by love and a desire to live in peace and when I'm motivated by the love of Christ when those values of Jesus become my values then I can take these words that he gives me and they can become real in my life therefore if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you leave your gift there in front of the altar first go and be reconciled to them then come and offer your gift that's our part we take the initiative we urgently pursue reconciliation And then we leave the matter in the hands of God.